0: Ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome um, to this uh, panel discussion. Uh, and um, uh, the LSE's European Institute is delighted to be hosting it, uh, with um, uh, in association with in partnership with the European Commission, and also with uh, FT Business, which is the publishing arm, specialist publishing arm of the Financial Times, who are our partner uh, in our European events. Um, so. As you know, the, uh, the EU budget is perhaps not a, a subject on, uh, on everybody's lips on the Athens Metro or the uh, Beer Kellers of Munich um, or uh, the Lisbon i um, After all, it accounts for just over 1% only of the EU's um, uh, gross um, national product. But for, th- for those of you who are here this evening and who are by definition, therefore I assume, interested um, in the issue... And certainly for the very large proportion, portion of the British, or the British media, who tend to get very exercised uh, about it, uh, this is a very much a hot topic. Uh, and let's not forget, of course, that we are talking about the European Union's fiduciary duty as well towards, um, towards its, uh, its taxpayers. So this is, this is no small matter. We're talking about a sum of, what, 129 billion euro? Um, so, so uh, something quite substantial. Now, when the EU budget does make the headlines, at least in this country, it tends to be either because of allegations of how mis- allegations of uh, misspending of the budget or because the British rebate is back in the spotlight. Most of the time, there's very little way, it seems, of just the ordinary public or even the interested public to get a handle on the broader issues about um, the budget. Um, Now, in theory, and maybe hopefully in practice too this time, things should be uh, somewhat different. The review is not the, um, as I'm sure we'll be hearing, it's not the actual negotiation for the next financial framework, which will start in 2013. But as far as I understand it, and um, the Commissioner will... um, Confirm this moment, um, I expect it's about agreeing some broad principles uh, and some orientate and orientations which should bear directly on um, the how the EU spends its money um, in the in the future. So, what does all the talk of a modern budget, a budget for the 21st century, a budget to equip Europe to face the new global challenges, what does all that mean in practice? And that's what we're going to be discussing. How great are the pressures for inertia? To what extent? Um, Uh, will the French Presidency's health check of the CAP, for example, uh, to what extent will that uh, potentially limit the options for reform? How will the structural funds need to be rethought in light of continuing, um, if modest, uh, EU enlargement? And what about the resources which the EU will surely need if it is to be a serious global player? Now, to take us through some of these issues, we have a really top-notch cast we've assembled for you, starting with our keynote speaker, whom we're absolutely delighted has made the trip over, especially from Brussels, um, the EU's Budget Commissioner, uh, Mrs Dalia Gruboskaita and we're delighted to have her with with us uh, here uh, this evening at the LSE. Um, By common consent, certainly the Brussels Press Corps I've spoken to, Mrs. is one of the most effective uh, members of uh, the present college um, of uh, commissioners. She's been EU commissioner for financial programming and the budget since 2004. Before that, she held a series of uh, senior political and, of- and official portfolios, including uh, being finance minister of Lithuania and before that, the deputy uh, foreign minister. Uh, and I'm sure her extensive political experience uh, uh, serves her well in handling, after all, what is a A highly sensitive and political, very political portfolio in the Commission, uh, where the protagonists on each side of the debate uh, are not necessarily arranged in the alliances we would always expect. Um, Often they are, obviously, uh, but not not always. Our second panellist is um, Zaki Cooper, who's sitting at the end there, who's Director of Business for New Europe. A business for New Europe, uh, an organisation you may well know of, it's a business organisation which, uh, in addition to supporting uh, Britain's active uh, involvement in the European Union, is, committing, is committed to promoting a reformed uh, and enlarged and uh, free market uh, Europe, as it says in its mission statement. And under Zaki Cooper's direction, BNE, Uh, has made itself a very sharp and effective contributor uh, to the European debate through seminars and conferences, policy papers, uh, letters to the media, uh, and so on. And as you can imagine, it has not been shy to pronounce on EU budget uh, reform. Our third panellist is Professor Ian Begg, who is my colleague uh, in the European Institute here at the LSE, and widely and rightly regarded as one of europe 's leading experts on the EU budget and Ian 's uh, expertise is widely called upon by the EU institutions and by governments across the European Union. He is always happy to share his uh, extraordinary knowledge on the subject and insights and i 'm very pleased that he is able to share it with us tonight. So um, I, would, I shall start by inviting Mrs to make her anis- the, the first keynote presentation uh, of the evening, um, and then Zaki Cooper and Ian Begg, um, and then um, uh, our panellists will be very happy to take questions from the floor, and I, I'm sure you won't be um, shy about coming forward uh, with this. So first of all, if I can ask you to welcome Mrs Dalia gribas from
1: the EU Budget Commissioner. Don't applaud too much, uh, because I'm not sure that I will be very good, because I was told I'm on the record. If I'm on the record, I'm not so interesting.
0: Well, we can go off the record, but of course it is a (laughs) substantial Let's uh, make
1: it that way. Uh, I will make a more or less official presentation, and uh, if you want interesting answers, we can go out of the record, okay? Okay, so now – and you understand what I mean. to talk about uh, reforming the budget, we started, uh, then we started with a new commission already in 2004. And then I came to office uh, after finance ministry, national government. I was so surprised how the European budget looks like its structure, how it is spent, uh, how untransparent it is. My first reaction was "Jesus is it possible that european budget can look so so bad is it possible that european budget can be spent so untransparent is it possible that it is financed so badly uh, this i uh, had occasion to say publicly in 2004 and then we started to negotiate in 2005, uh, finally, and finished uh, new financial framework. And, and at that time, I remember it was exactly the British presidency, and we had very, very, I uh, we'll say, interesting intercontacts inter- with uh, Prime Minister uh, Mr. Blair at that time. Um, and of course, UK debate was on the table, uh, cap policy was on the table, and we were battling between each other and uh, with member states, Commission, and of course with Parliament. And usually. The European Commission is somewhere in the middle, Uh, Parliament wants as much as possible, more Europe, more money, that's the philosophy of European Parliament. Uh, Member States, more Europe but less money, that's the philosophy of Member States. We are somewhere in between, we want everything to be paid what Member States agree and try to guarantee that all treaties are followed. Uh, and, of course, with the proposals, uh, legislative proposals um, for future of 21st century, because uh, as we go for, and we'll see how European Union's budget look like, which we were capable, finally, to negotiate in 2005, and structure shows that about 80% of European budget is spent for the policies which have been negotiated last century, in the middle of it. Only two policies, common agricultural policy and structural one. The rest, or cohesion or regional, how you call it. The rest, 5-6% goes to uh, bureaucratic um, uh, bureaucracy uh, or administrative expenditures, and the rest goes to everything else. Education, innovation, research, uh, new trans-European networks, extended relations. In reality, only leftovers. Can European budget look in some way that we are, not only because now we are talking about crisis, but already a few years ago so we were saying that we are in the 21st century. There are new challenges and European budget is not capable <coughs> to respond. In reality, European budget is all the time, and today also, is looking and, and paying for the past, not for the future. That's how European budget looks also today. And especially now, when we see these problems behind and outside this room, in any country, then we are challenged by global stresses today in, in economies, in the in financial sector. European budget, in reality, has no, neither means neither tools to react efficiently and help member states. Of course, I can now paint you beautiful instruments how we can help, but I don't want because in reality it is only window dressing. What you can do with such amounts? Of course politically we can say a lot and very nice things and we create beautiful papers and programs but we're not able to pay for them. To negotiate something which is important for Europe, for example as last year we did on Galileo it was painful and very difficult The unspent agricultural monies, which have been in the budget, usually they automatically return back for the member states. We were not able to use them for the priorities and needs which were dropping on us or are facing us every year. We managed but with pain and as ad hoc solution. Is it the way how Europe can react? Of course not. So why I was very happy, of course with the partly with the involvement and pressure of British government at that time, uh, that member states agreed finally, first time in European history in 2005, that overall budget reform of European budget is necessary. That was first time in history. Usually negotiations have been for financial frameworks five or seven years, and usually it was a huge and bloody battle of very shadow and negotiations behind the closed door. Rhetoric outside the room was beautiful, progressive, very very nice uh, nice uh, sounding. In the room, <coughs> around the table, negotiations have been only about just return, how much I receive back. Only about monies, not about policies at all. What we want to do now, well, well, how we're pushing member states to, to behave now, the first to talk what policies Europe needs to finance. What is better to do on European level, and what is better to do on national level? Maybe some policies which we do have now are already so old or better be be financed by national budget than European one. So we used the criteria in our consultation process, and and we will be using this criteria for budget proposal of of how it's going to be reformed, so called European value added. And we tried to ask people and we went to a wide range of consultations. How to spend for what? How European budget needs to be financed and the delivery of flexibility and accountability instruments we can use. And we asked a lot of people, and first time, as I said in history, this was done very publicly, and we tried, uh, and I will try to, to, to give you a little bit, some messages, what we received from governments, NGOs, think tanks, universities, and just s- civil society. Um, I will be not able to say exactly what I um, What we are going to propose, but from my uh, body language, you will understand what I like and what I know. It is very difficult to hide. Okay, public debate. Very clear desire for change, from practically from all actors, from all actors of all, all participants. All member states responded. We got over 2,000 people involved directly in 20 countries during all process of consultation. So we got directly 300 contributions, uh, and we asked uh, to have uh, free studies produced for us. I ordered uh, with VMIDG free studies, and one gentleman here uh, was helping us also. So on spending, we got a group from Netherlands. On financing, we got by... uh, by one of the gentlemen sitting here and evaluation was done uh, by another group. So I wanted not only to have very good team, which we do have in Commission, very good professionals, not only to hear from them what to do, I wanted the external pressure and opinions on Commission, on Member States, how really public outside the European institutions thinks about what we need to do. So uh, we were very happy that diversity uh, of pre- representation in, in these consultations have been giving very similar and, and, and directed response. Uh, main uh, elements which we uh, can summarise that most of uh, responders have been giving us priorities for how and where European budget is supposed to be uh, delivered. It's mainly three large groups of priorities. It's competitiveness, research, innovation, exactly opposite what is happening today. Then environment, climate change, then energy. It's not only energy supply, it's also energy uh, research, uh, invest in energy efficiency technologies, indirect spending in renewable energy, a lot of elements of energy, and we we know, of course, that in in Lisbon Treaty we tried also to include w- as one of the priority policies for European Union in future energy as common policy, but it's not yet here. We're not yet here. Uh, to to be able to have common policy in Union, you you need to change the treaty. So at least, if you're not able to change t- change the treaty, try to do budget reform. We're trying, and. Uh, I will say that we're trying it quite successfully because yesterday, if you were careful listening uh, in this package which European Commission presented and adopted yesterday for recovery of economy, one part is proposal to reopen financial framework negotiations for uh, energy connection links or trans-European networks for Europe. And this we're pushing hardly to try to top additional resources for important policies which are very much necessary for all Europe, not just for one region, for all Europe. And as I said, if you're not able to change treaty, try to change something else. Okay. Uh, Now, colors are different, neutral (coughs) colors. Cohesion policy, yes, it was mentioned as important, but uh, as policy which was quite neutrally um, uh, described. It is supported; it is needed, but it needed also to be changed. Concentrate funds on less developed member states or regions, focus on economic convergence, and extend response to global challenges. So that's very general, very very neutral, and that's clear that not radical reform needed, at least from from the the, the response we received. Agriculture purely in red. If you take traffic lights, you know what means red light. So including our researches and studies show that practically all this policy was not able to pass the test of European Value Added. What that means? That means it's better to be done on the level of member states, probably. But of course, uh, we understand that in Europe, radical ideas are not so easy finding the way. And anything you want, you're doing not so fast. I always was giving the example of my experience in government, as I was a minister, on the difference how fast you can make reforms in Europe and how fast in, in national government. So then we were preparing Lithuania for membership, my main goal was to prepare financial system and make reforms of uh, financial system for the key communautaire of European Union. And for example, four laws on taxes, four different taxes, four laws, we we'll were able to manage in three months. Year, to change something at least, you will need three years. So that's the proportion of differences how we can speed and how we can manage. But anyway, that means anyway we can manage. Only it takes longer, more compromises, a little bit more difficult, but anyway. So that's more or less outcome with traffic lights which are very clearly indicating how people, how academia, how some member states, not all of course, uh, treat and evaluate uh, the main uh, trend, what we need to do. So now again, is more or less with colors, uh, not only about spending, of course we were asking Member States and people uh, how you think European budget needs to be financed or do we need special European tax or can we keep as it is? Uh, I can only say that uh, to you today that our own resource system or so-called how we are financing European budget has 40, 40, 40 exceptions on exceptions on exceptions. It's not only about UK rebates we have exception on BAT, then exception for exception on VAT, and so on. So it's, it became a very, very nice ball of untransparency, which you cannot explain and understand. For each cycle of negotiations of seven years, it became less, uh, less uh, transparent, more difficult to be managed, and more costly. So, uh, traditional own resources, so called, which we do have based on custom union in Europe, um, custom duties and so on, are taken and uh, accepted as uh, and supported. GNI based contribution mainly, yes, strong emphasis, it is working well, it's easy to be administered and clear. But of course, uh, and probably here uh, one of the (laughs) possible speakers will uh, make uh, some uh, more clarity because then we talk about any uh, own resource or so-called tax uh, system. There is a political decision you need to make or you take more economic efficiency or you also invite... Political dis- political elements uh, or decisiveness in this in this, because you know that uh, at least on national level, a tax system is a very ideological element. If only economists will be able to decide, it will be a lot easier and better. But politicians are deciding. Here also, Europe is also a political union. Also, politicians deciding a lot, and it adds sometimes or quite often, not very efficient economically, but, but we in political systems, we in political life, uh, very negative, um, quite negative uh, critical response to VAT-based contribution, especially today's existing, and of course total disappointment All any kind of corrections. And here not making a special emphasis on UK debate, all kind of corrections, and as I said, we have today about 40. On alternative owned resources or so-called European tax, it's not so simple because nobody knows uh, what's, what is today is European tax and can we have really genuine European tax. Uh, most discussions are going for some kind of new elements uh, of taxes and that mainly includes the taxes of consumption, let's say on CO2 emission or, or, or corporate tax or whatever. But it, this is not uh, genuine European taxes because such kind of taxes an, any continent can have. Uh, Africa can have also and and we cannot um, pretend that it is only genuine European tax Uh, for any genuine tax you need a very serious economic basis, for traditional resources you have basis custom union for genuine European tax in my opinion you need a very deep quality of internal market which we do not have Yet, so uh, from this point of view, of course, we can talk about only alternative own resources, but not as genuine European tax. And here, most uh, uh, opinions have been: we need to keep the door open and to discuss what we can include or not. And of course, each additional, especially consumption uh, tax, consuming uh, consumption tax or any sectorial tax, has a lot of logic pros and cons. Uh, mainly because economically yes, uh, politically especially yes, but from simplicity, efficiency, and uh, transparency in the system, and simplification, no, because all these taxes again will uh, will request a lot of um, exceptions and will push member states again to complicate the system. So, why deciding invite new tar- new own resource or not? It will be a lot, a lot of waiting. What is more important? Efficiency, transparency, and simplicity over the system? Or other arguments? So, but here, the range of opinions are so huge. And any, the more economists you talk with, the more different opinions you will have. If you talk with the European Parliament, it's absolutely a different story. They want uh, uh, so-called European tax, everything uh, not from governments, out governments at all from payment, directly European members, European Union uh, people to pay, uh, and so on. But that's uh, normal. Uh, Between three institutions, especially two ones, I mean council and parliament, it's uh, very much elbow game. I mean elbow power game than uh, economic discussions. (coughs) Okay, what lessons we can draw at least from the the discussion uh, and consultations? Practically everybody agreed, including Member States, that reform is the only option and that changes are very strongly necessary. I can say only that today's situation and what we are facing in the nearest two years in all Europe and the world only confirms that we have been on the right track. Our decision to start budget reform was very right already in 2005. Now it's necessary more than ever. Uh, Money to deliver objectives. New budget must be opened to the new ideas, refocus spending on future challenges, and turn backwards to the future and not look back, not look to the, to, to, to the past. Uh, center of gravity in European budget is supposed to be competitiveness, environment, energy, at least that's the nearest goals what we need to focus on. On how European budget is supposed to be uh, delivered, Fair and transparent mechanisms of contribution, because today we have very different, very complex formulas with a lot of exceptions. After each time of negotiations, as I said, the financial framework became more and more complicated and difficult to explain. And of course, flexibility. Today, European budget has no flexibility. And it was done for purpose, because if you cannot spend on one or another program, In most cases, Member States would like this money to return for them back, especially for Member States who are paymasters. And especially now, then you have a seven-year framework, and you're not able to, in the middle of this period of time, a little bit to use uh, flexibility. And especially now, then, for example, we need it for Galileo. Uh, Now we're asking for a new trans-European network We're not able to. We need to return back and ask Member States to renegotiate. And negotiations are very, very difficult. In in, in most cases, it is unanimity. If it will be only majority, it will be easier. But in unanimity environment, on financial framework, you know that Member States are using this. And uh, sometimes, after the night of negotiations, you come up with gifts to everybody. And these gifts are very difficult to explain. Why, for example, one region of a very, very rich country receives 100 million euros? Why a very uh, not very rich country is still paying very, very too, too much into UK rebates? And so on so And why, for example, from UK rebates, free, uh, free developed and very developed large countries are having an exceptions. OK, so without naming the countries, um, I, w- I would like to say that it's not no, not only about the, where we are spending, it's also how we are financing and the federal element can or will the European budget has flexibility to move and refocus during the seven years if challenges are falling on us. So that's the main lessons we are drawing from the consultations. We will try to concentrate whatever we can, as I said. During this already f- five period of our work, close to five uh, years, already uh, last Friday, uh, we finished negotiations between Council and Parliament on 2009 budget. Uh, and I w- would like to say that already in each year negotiations, we tried to use as poss- as much as possible the small, um, uh, small uh, space where we can to transfer to more competitiveness, to more research, and so on. And in 2007, or 2008, first time in European history, we spend more, 2008, we spend more on competitiveness than on agriculture. So, at least for me, that was a very, very good message. It uh, was very good message. So, uh, that's <coughs> what we try to do. Uh, and uh, 2009 is the same, and we're trying to do as, as much as possible, transferring this uh, to the more efficient areas, because, you know, it's only about 1% of European GDP, and you need to, to value each European euro, which is supposed to give... More value spent on European level than on national one because we have too, much, too, too little to be able to spend uh, t- to an efficient uh, and uh, quite old uh, design policies. So that's the main um, outcome of our, um, our confirmation, what we thought anyway, but we are happy that this was confirmed by huge involvement and large range uh, consultations. Uh, And we're happy that uh, we have the backing now, not only our understanding, think tanks, not yet political one, because politicians, I mean, uh, some ambassadors are not very happy about this outcome, and you know that before the... On 12th of November, we had a wrapping-up conference about, uh, the confera- uh, about the consultations, and we have been asked to publish the results only before the conference because some of the member states were so uh, afraid that uh, they will see some messages, which I am talking to now. But of course, you are not a representative of member states, so you can take it easier uh, than some other uh, participants <laughs> of consultations.
0: There are some
1: representatives. <laughs> yeah, states. yeah, but they are not from treasuries, not from government, only from diplomatic. Corp. So, so that's easier. <laughs> that's easier. So what I'm saying so we're happy we got uh, backing uh, we, 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 we just got confirmation that we're on good track we're trying to use no matter what will be outcome of uh, final product and how the negotiations will evolve at least we're trying to do what we can and I'm happy to say that during this uh, at least if on Friday we negotiated 2009 budget it is fifth budget what my DG and I was preparing, and I can say that practically all budgets, five, have been dot-to-dot dot what we proposed, Commission, because then we're proposing, Member States are reducing, Parliament is increasing. And finally, we got what we got. So uh, sometimes I'm joking, maybe we don't need all this procedure, just to accept, uh, to accept and that's it. Okay, so I, I tried to be a little bit candid. I tried to be not so boring because then you talk about budgets, usually everybody says budget is so technical, uh, no matter that I'm on the tape. Um, and especially because it's so late for me that I tried to keep my adrenaline not to fall asleep before question session uh, I hope that I made it a little bit uh, less boring for you uh, but uh, we say that if there is a serious problem it's better to say it ironically, candidly with a little bit joking, it's easier to, to, to work on uh, very difficult um, problems than, than you have and facing. So uh, I will be ready after the speakers to respond as much as I can.
0: Thank you, Commissioner, for a, a very crisp and punchy exposition where we are on the budget review <coughs> uh, and also for making quite clear what your own um, that's uh, that's views, views were. Um, phone uh, phone phone. Uh, we're it's going to hear now from, um, uh, okay. from Zaki Cooper. I think I'll just have to whiz uh-huh. in that case. I uh, just to remind you of those who those came late, like, Zaki Cooper is
2: Director of Business for New Europe. Okay, thank you, Maurice. Um, I'm delighted to be here alongside two such distinguished panellists who are sort of eminent experts on on this subject and also at a university which is playing really a key role in the European debate and has played a a hugely active role in taking forward the European debate in the UK. Um, In terms of the structure of my presentation, I mean, there are five kind of headings that it splits into. I'll just tell you a bit about Business for New Europe, as not all of you may be over-familiar with us. Um, we'll talk around so, about some issues around the EU budget, and there are four I've identified. Um, then I'm going to tell you a bit about what our organisation, which is only two and a half years old, has done on the budget. Then I'm going to talk more widely about the political and media kind of landscape in the UK. And then I'm going to kind of conclude. So there we go. Ten minutes. Ten minutes, yeah. <laughs> so that's us, Business for New Europe. Um, we were founded in March 2006, essentially pro-European but pro-reform a uh, you know, critical friend of the European Union committed to Britain's membership of the EU but also ready to take a stand where we don't think the EU is getting everything right we're a coalition of business leaders and we have um, those business leaders on our advisory council some of the names will be familiar to you uh, Peter Sutherland I know is, is involved with, um, with LSE um, and a lot of the other names may or may not be familiar to you but some, some sort of eminent people from the British business community uh, chairman of, of FTSE 100 companies and so on. Um, and they all agree with those principles, which you can find on our website. Um, uh, just to you know, emphasize that, um, as well as supporting a business friendly agenda, we're very pro enlargement. And uh, somewhat uh, contentiously, perhaps, we include uh, commitment to Turkish accession in our principles. Okay. And that's a bit about kind of the engine room of the organisation. Again, one or two people to point out, uh, Lord Jay and Stephen Wall, who are uh, retired diplomats who 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 have sort of got an encyclopedic knowledge of Britain's relations with the EU and are involved with us on a sort of voluntary basis as vice-chairs, as well as various other people. Okay. So we've heard already from the Commissioner uh, much of this about the review of the budget, Uh, of course significant in the UK because it was agreed under a British presidency um, at the end of 2005, Uh, and obviously they committed to a full and wide-ranging review of the budget, Uh, no taboos. Um, all aspects of EU spending. Of course, uh, at the time, there was a bit of a flare-up in the UK media because the UK agreed to give up uh, a part of its rebate over the 2007-13 to 13 period. Um, but um, certainly, at the end of 2005, it was a, sort of a very, very topical issue. And then really went on the back burner, uh, I think anyway, in to, in two th- sort of politically in 2006 uh, uh, and, and to some extent in 2007. Um, and really at the beginning of this year we anticipated it would be one of the issues for the EU uh, one of the big, big issues, which to some extent it has been, although events with the credit crunch have slightly sort of t- taken over. Um, uh, uh, but, uh, but certainly, people in the business community who were involved with us uh, identified it as a topic that they wanted to get involved in, have a say on, uh, 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 agree to a view on, and hence we produced a budget for business, which was essentially Business for New Europe, our organization's. Uh, input into the Commission's consultation, which we finalised in April, uh, and I'll talk more about in a moment. So, there you are, Barroso, the budget review is unique, a unique once in a generation opportunity. Um, so, issues around the budget. Uh, four big issues I've identified, which I'll have to run through pretty quickly. Uh, one is about the size of the budget in the UK's rebate, very emotive issue in the UK. Secondly, about auditing. Thirdly, about you know, how the money's spent. Or, which we've heard a lot from the Commissioner, uh, and the Common Agricultural Policy, and then, fourthly, the the dreaded credit crunch and economic downturn. So, in terms of the size and the rebate, I mean, this has history, as they would say, Um, and uh, really, the landmark event was the Fontainebleau Summit in 1984, when Margaret Thatcher went and won a rebate for the UK, because at the time, it was... Uh, a relatively, uh, you know, not so prosperous member of the EU and it was a, it was becoming a huge sort of huge contributor um, and she, she managed to win a rebate at that time in 1984. There's a quote from her which is sort of much repeated uh, over the next uh, sort of 25, 20 years or so. Um, and, uh, yeah, of course she threatened to stop payments to the EU budget if she didn't get some form of recompense. Um, just one thing, very quickly, to say about the size of the budget is that, of course, we've heard already it's 1% of the EU GDP. It's about two to two and a half percent of overall um, aggregate sort of European public expenditure. And there's huge, huge misconceptions. I mean, if you ask anyone anecdotally, or even poll a group of people or business leaders about the size of the budget, they all think it's much larger than that. And that's partly a misconception that's fed by a lot of the media around the budget. Um, and it's remarkable, actually, what reaction we got from some of the business leaders involved with us when we told them about the size of the budget, and they, they were amazed that it was so modest, actually. So that's really one of the, the sort of fascinating things that we discovered this year. Um, on auditing, of course, uh, yeah, I mean, as we know, the EU accounts have been failed by the course of auditors for 14 years in a row. Um, that's not a good situation. Uh, we as pro-Europeans do not necessarily, you know, we don't go along and, and say that's fine. Uh, Pro-Europeans should be in the vanguard of criticising the EU when it doesn't get things right, as I alluded to at the beginning, and uh, we have gone on record in being critical of this situation. Um, there are some, you know, there's always another side to the argument, and I've given some of them there, about 80% of the budget being administered by Member States, or often it's Member States who are not actually spending money in the right way. House of Lords report, uh, you can read that yourselves, uh, you know, no, the, the level of fraud is no higher than in comparable public expenditure programmes. But certainly I think we need improved sort of parliamentary scrutiny of, of EU expenditure in the UK. Um, and just coming back to this, I mean, th- th- this was basically to show that obviously newspapers in the UK get very excited every November when this story breaks about the, the accounts being uh, failed again. And you can see a couple of headlines we picked out. There are lots of others, and you can just just look at the, the press for the 10th of November 2008, and you'll see a, a litany of stories which, you know, while amusing perhaps on the, to some, actually do a lot of damage, I think, to the credibility of the EU in the UK. Um, so, look, the third area was on policy priorities. We've already seen the lovely pie charts from the Commissioner... Uh, showing us how the money of the EU is spent, so I won't dwell on that because it's not quite as artistic as, as the commissioners like. Um, but uh, but uh, obviously um, the business community and, and I think the public at large feel that there needs to be a, reall- a reallocation. We've already heard a lot about that. It's an obvious point that the makeup of the budget does not reflect the present reality of the EU nor the global situation. I think one interesting point to make, though, within that is that Uh, A lot of reform has already taken place. We've heard about cap as a proportion of the EU budget falling over time, uh, and the the trend is in the right direction, but it's still not enough. We know that. Um, Barroso recently, José Manuel Barroso, has spoken about smart spending on the following areas, and, again, I think there's a lot of sense in that, in the money going from uh, the agricultural budget and the cohesion funds towards some, some of these other areas um, I'll just move on quite quickly. Uh, look, on the credit crunch, I mean, I mean, I think this really sort of, you know, we, we can't have a, a session on the EU budget and what's wrong with the EU budget without addressing the overall uh, global economic situation. Uh, we know that uh, the global economy is in for a tough time. Uh, you know, uh, downcasting of growth for next year in the UK, in the Eurozone, in the US, etc., etc., so, I, I think sort of th- this has to be borne in mind, and, and particularly when we think about what the EU budget's for. Well, if it's for anything, it's to help us through uh, tough economic times and the economic crisis. So, I think you know, my, my policy making mind should be turning towards thinking well, how can we use this amount pot of money, 129 billion euros, towards alleviating uh, uh, the credit crunch situation? Um, yeah, I mean, the response, uh, this is a, a whole sort of two-hour lecture in itself, but uh, we've seen a, a pretty vigorous response from the UK and the EU, and arguably globally on, on the credit crunch. We've seen national action, the recapitalisation of the banks, coordinated monetary policy, uh, the fiscal announcements this week by the EU on Wednesday... Uh, uh, sort of, which was um, well, the UK announced the previous week in their pre-budget report what fiscal action the UK government was taking. So we're seeing a sort of overall effort uh, globally of coming together to try and address the, address the credit crunch. Um, just again to look at the wider issue, to go from the micro issue, of the EU budget, to the wider one of EU competitiveness. Th- there's a lot within that, but ju- just to pick out a few things. Um, th- look, the EU faces huge short-term and long-term challenges. I mean, obviously. Uh, growth and jobs, uh, which uh, the Commission has focused on in the last uh, couple of years, uh, it, it is a huge priority. Uh, unemployment was 7.5%. It's undoubtedly more than that within the EU. Um, and it has longer-term challenges. About I, I put China and India there, but this is about the competitiveness of the EU relative to all the other emerging economies. the sort of Some of the G20 members non-European G20 members demographic issues as well Um, so huge huge issues there Um, I'll I'll, I'll move on because there's a lot to get through so just to sort of sum up a budget for business was our response to the commission's consultation what we did was we went out to the business community and said what do you think of the EU budget, its size, its scope, its policy priorities and they came back with all sorts of responses which we distilled into those five main headings so those are the five main sort of f- recommendations, if you like, and findings. Um, obviously, there's a h- point three, you know, a harsh view of the CAP, which you would expect. Um, there was also a feeling that the level of the budget was about right. It shouldn't necessarily be increased. Um, also a feeling that there should be no change in, in, in the revenue-raising mechanisms, too okay uh, that, that I've just picked out four examples of what some of the business leaders I mean we got a, a lot of responses, but that's what four of our more sort of eminent business leaders said when we asked them um, and uh, there you are I mean very strong views on the CAP as you can see from business leader number one, uh, and this fellow Paul Marshall, who's um, one of our business leaders on our council again he the reason i've Identified him as the, because this is from a, a speech he gave at a at, a, at the Liberal Dem, Democrat Party conference um, last year. Um, and again, uh, try to, to, perhaps, we, just for the Commission and in bigu can Yeah, just the the, the the
0: initial bit. Or okay, no, say, of course, of the course.
2: Yeah, CAP is an abomination. It's a protectionist racket which benefits rich farmers, etc., etc., etc. Then at the end he quotes Vince Cable, who is now, as you know, the Liberal Democrat Treasury Secretary, uh, who said that um, the cap is an economic, environmental and social disgrace. So, you know, there's a very, very strong feeling. I mean, he happens to be a business leader who's very committed to Africa and the developing world. So, I mean, he also is looking at the cap's impact on the developing world too. Um, I've spoken already a bit about the UK media and and their perception. I mean, basically the budget is used as an opportunity uh, by the UK media to sort of beat up the EU. I mean, sometimes sometimes it's deserved, I think, Uh, other times not so, and it's exaggerated. Um, uh, We've picked out three headlines there, but you could find a lot more if you did a Google search. Um, That's a comment as well from a, a sort of think tank, Open Europe, Um, who uh, have said, you know, $100 what a waste, shouldn't it be spent elsewhere? So, you know, that's the sort of climate, some of the climate of opinion in the UK. In in terms of public opinion, what do the public think? Well, actually, they think most of it is spent on administration. The perception in the UK is that the EU is this sort of vast bureaucracy. Again, it's a skewed perception, uh, but, uh, but there you are. I mean, so when we ask, when Eurobarometer asks people in the UK, what's the major item... Of expenditure in the EU budget administration. That's the, the thing that most people identified, which is very interesting. I mean, it's not the case, I think it's 5% or so. But uh, anyway, that's what people think. And there's a bit more of a breakdown on sort of British and European opinion on what people think the major item of expenditure is in the EU budget. So look, signs of hope. I mean, we, we were very interested, we were sort of very. Um, Immersed in this issue at the beginning of the year, um, and we were on the lookout when President Sarkozy came over to the UK on his state visit in March. We were very interested in watching closely what, what he said, uh, and in his speech to the Houses of Parliament, when he addressed both Houses of Parliament, he said um, he gave quite a strong sign of hope about um, the UK wants agricultural policy to be reformed. France is ready for this, etc., etc., et cetera, So, I mean, you know, obviously France and the UK are not necessarily going to see eye to eye on this. And there have been some recent meetings in Brussels that point in the other direction that seem to show that France is sort of strengthening its grip on, on, on the status quo with the cap, which aren't so hopeful. But anyway, we identified this earlier this year as a, a sign of hope. So, conclusion, yeah. I think the budget's important, not so much because of the amount of money, uh, but, but because it goes to the heart of what an organisation's about. As a business-based organisation, you look at... Um, the first thing you do when you want to find out about business is look at its balance sheet. And similarly, with a, with a public organisation, if you like, the way you find out about it is, is find out how it gets its money and, and spends its money. So, it's a very, I think it's a very profound question for the EU. The, the, the budget, it's an existential question. Um, there are obviously strong views in the business community, um, hopefully constructive ones as well. Um, obviously, a lot of resistance to the common agricultural policy and a feeling that that should be a diminished part of the overall budget. Um, it's a politically sensitive issue because um, the, some of the media may, you know, make a big deal about, about of it at times. But I think, on the more optimistic side, it's a great opportunity, as the commissioner was alluding to, for the EU to show its relevance in the modern age, and it will be a great test for the EU over the short to medium term to see if it can do that. Uh, And then we always have the prospect of future enlargement—Croatia, Turkey—looming over things to see how that will affect the budget. But that's that's it. Thank you very
0: much, Saki. It's a very uh, spirited uh, intervention Mm -hmm. and very interesting. Thank you. Uh, and our final speaker is Professor
3: Ian Begg yeah, of the, of the Ian right, Thank you. Uh, there's always a risk that many of the things that should have been said have already been said, or that I'll be repeating some of what uh, has gone before, so bear with me when I run through this. First observation, something that has not been mentioned yet, is that there was a decision within the Commission that this was supposed to be something done by the present Commission not its successor. And one of the risks here is that this present commission is running out of political time as well as actual time. So there's a danger here that, uh, Zaki's already shown us this no taboos business and so on, but that it's a, it's a reform project about policies. And what what's meant by that is that it should aim to get a different set of items on the agenda for the budget, rather than being the negotiation, or the first stage of negotiation, of the next package, which will last for a further five or possibly seven years. So if, if it's to be the decisive break that everybody seems to want, including the, the business leaders, I'm apprehensive that there's no political window left for the bold, opportunity, bold proposals that, that need to emerge. And just consider some of the background to this. There's a a French presidency which has decided not really to have much to do with it. The next presidency is the Czechs, who are famous for their europhiliac approach, especially of their president, Václav Klaus. We have a great concern that as the European Parliament starts to fade away towards towards the elections that will take place in the the spring, they too won't concentrate on this. So I'm very concerned that all the actors who ought to be making this happen are not making it happen, with one honourable exception. Danger, therefore, is that not, not enough will emerge from it as it should do now this we've cut off the bottom line here, but this, this is an extract from the commission 's consultation paper, which i 'll read out for the benefit of those sitting at the top here that a result, The budget is a result of political trade offs rather than a well grounded allocation decision to advance European objectives. The real needs are often of secondary importance. What does that message tell us? It tells us that the budget is about politics. It's about making harsh trade-offs between different things. And the second element that I picked out from the document is that the EU budget should be policy-driven and based on sound analysis of the added value of EU-level spending to advance our shared policy agenda. This is the Commission's optimistic view of how it should operate as opposed to the, the Juste retour approach which the Commissioner has already described to us where they all, t- they all talk in public about the, the grand design and as soon as they get into the, the negotiating room it's all about counting the pennies going in, on, on your side or their side of the, of the accounts. So I think that we, we do face a great political challenge in making the budget move. Now the review we were told is this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity a once-in-a-generation opportunity to change things. And, yes, it's been a very hesitant process for all sorts of reasons. First, the Irish. <laughs> now, it's not just the result of the Irish referendum. It's also the fact that in the run-up to the Irish referendum, nobody dared talk about the budget review. There are good reasons for this. Um, some cavalier people from the LSE proposed that, uh, for, for instance, corporate income tax might in the conceivable future be used... Under certain circumstances, if the wind was in the right direction, as a means of funding the EU budget. Now, you can imagine what any kind of mention of that might have have resulted in in the Irish referendum. Budget, proposal to tax corporate income, undermines the Irish economy. Vote no. That could have been the outcome. So the result of this was that the deadline for the consultation was extended by two months. The political conference, as the commissioner has already told us, only took place last week, six months after it was, or nearly six months after it was originally scheduled. And we've got these looming political deadlines that I've mentioned to you. So is there going to be a culmination early next year? To me, there would need to be to make the political timetable credible. Or if it's later, in the middle of next year, you're into a Swedish presidency, we know that the, the second semester presidency doesn 't actually start until September, <coughs> so you could find out that this commission simply won 't be, be able to achieve its ambition of dealing with this budget and it 'll be shunted to the next one, which will take six months to gear up and then you 're straight into the negotiations for the next, next financial perspective, and you lose this momentum for change that 's the concern I have in, in all of this i don 't know why this 's gone back to front, but um, Here's my attempt to interpret some of the things which, if you were to think scientifically or as an economist about subsidiarity, the sorts of things that you'd want to put on the table. Now, what should be in the budget at European level? Well, it's it's the sorts of policies that enable us to do things on a bigger scale better, hence using economies of scale or economies of scope in some cases. You could say that a good example of this is external action. Why should we have external action in different places being done in an uncoordinated manner when you can get a greater bang for your buck, or bang for your euro in this case, if you do it at at European level? The same with research and development. Fragmented research and development systems are not going to be able to compete with the emerging giants like China and the existing giants like the US, which are able to do it better. There are also, good economists' phrase here, externalities. Very often, a member, an individual member state will underinvest in a particular uh, policy program for the straightforward reason that it cannot, uh, it cannot obtain all the benefits from it, it cannot appropriate the benefits. Consider a a possibly trivial example. Why would the Austrians build a trans-alpine highway if it was going to be used by Germans and Italians? Expand that to other areas of networks, and you can see that there are all sorts of networks which would benefit from having a European level of spending. The same can be true of something like security, where collective security is enhanced by having a a European level of this. Climate, Climate change policies have already been mentioned extensively. Now, what should be out Ultimately, it's policies that, that reflect differences in what individual member states want to do. One member state wants to do something with its agricultural sector. Another one wants to do something else. One wants a particular form of rural development. One wants a different form of rural development. So, And lots of, lots of the side payments have this characteristic of having be, have been introduced into the EU budget simply to deal with differences and preferences among member states. And then contrast this with the right-hand column. What's in the budget... Agricultural policy, cohesion, and little bits of everything else, as the Commissioner has already mentioned. What's under provided are the networks, the climate change policies, external security poli- and internal security policies, and the underpinnings for competitiveness. These are all the sorts of things that a modern agenda would say ought to be in. So we need to invert all of this, apply the economic theory, and bring in the sorts of things that would make sense. Now, this is an economist's answer, not a politician's answer, but there are occasions at least where economists have something to say in all of this now on the the funding side of the budget the the Commissioner very kindly (coughs) mentioned the the study that was led from LSE but involved uh, researchers in Sciences Po in in Paris, the Hertie School in in Berlin and the University of Ljubljana what do you want what do you want in the funding system for the EU budget and I, I would argue I've simplified it here into three categories of characteristics Effective funding of the budget is the first, where you want to be sure that enough money is raised to pay for the expenditure that's been agreed. And you want that revenue-raising capacity to be stable. You also want it to be straightforward to administer. So that's, that's a kind of administrative set of criteria, of thing, things you want. Then you want to think about different economic effects. Some are normative. We want the, the funding system to be equitable, to make sure that... Uh, Individual citizens ultimately pay according to their circumstances, but at least at the level of member states. Member states are paying according to their ability to pay. That's that's an equity consideration. But as economists, again, we would want to say avoid having a funding system that distorts the economy. Don't use particular funding channels, whether it be taxes or some other kind of preemption. And then there are various political objectives which also come into this. The EU level would say we want financial autonomy. We don't want to be dependent on member states' decisions and vacillations or even the threats of, of a particular iron ladies to withdraw funding at any point. And yet we also want it to be simple. European parliamentarians say we want the funding to be transparent. Now this is taking a risk, it's saying to the people, vote for us and we will tell you which taxes that we will impose to pay for Europe and if you don't like it, vote us out. Now, Forgive me, Morris. isn't that not what we call democracy? We have this strange position in the European Union where it's exactly the reverse of the Boston Tea Party. What we have is representation without taxation. It's a curious way of running things. So these are the the categories of criteria that I think we ought, ought to have in mind in thinking how to fund the EU budget. And then it becomes a straightforward choice. We have the current approach which is intergovernmental transfers, essentially. Eighty-five percent of the EU budget today is funded by intergovernmental transfers, which are called the GNI resource and the VAT resource. They're based essentially on the relative prosperity of member states, and each month they, the finance ministers will sign a cheque which they send to Mrs and uh, she, she puts it in her bank in, in Brussels and spends it. The first we
1: request how
3: much we need, it, and then they sign. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the alternative we've already discussed it in the Commissioner's speech, is that there should be authentic taxes at European level. And um, there are those of you in the room who will say, under no circumstances can the European level have have any taxes. Well, I've got news for you, it already does. Customs duties are paid, with certain hesitations along the way, directly to the European budget. They belong to the European budget, and therefore they are what we call, in the jargon, own resources. And there's a perfectly respectable argument for all levels of government to say that they should be funded by their own resources. Now, typically, in, in local administrations, you find that a property tax is the basis for at least the, the proportion of the revenue they raise for, them, for themselves. At member state level, an income tax tends to be the mainstay, as is VAT. Now, there, there can therefore be sorts of taxes that can be used at European level to, to, to achieve European aims. Now the current system, as I've stressed, is, main, is mainly intergovernmental transfers, even though the treaty says that the EU budget shall be funded by own resources. Uh, that's already a degree of incompatibility. If you wanted to move to true, true own resources, you'd be giving up the certainty of the, the budget flows, because one feature of the GNI resource is that it expands or contracts to meet precisely what the EU budget needs. Whereas if you assign particular taxes to the EU level, they may have vacillating fluctuating yields, and you'd you find that uh, the yield wasn't sufficient. So if you are more concerned about the many political imperatives, you would want to go towards a tax. If you're more concerned about simple administrative efficiency, stick with the existing system. It's a pretty straightforward choice. And if we were to move towards an EU, EU resource that's genuinely owned as in the manner I've been describing... One assertion that I will make is that there will never be a perfect one. We'll find flaws in anything that's proposed, and we've done extensive examination of the different ones. Yet, at the same time, there are plenty of straightforwardly credible ones. They they won't be 100%, but they'll be satisfactory. Now, corrections, which is EU jargon, for those of you who don't know it, for rebates, this is a much more tricky area. We've already made the case that... uh, Zaki's already made the case that uh, in the U- for the UK in the early 1980s, it was justified. We were paying too much, we were relatively poorer than many of the other member states, and so on. But that's changed. Not only have new member states with a much lower level of income come in, but the UK has also had this uh, Wirtschaftswunder where it moved up the prosperity tables. Now, I think that the, the corrections can be criticised for an entirely different reason, which is that they look at the EU EU purely on an accounting basis. Does how much we pay in and how much we get out reflect how how much we gain from the EU? And the straightforward answer is, of course it doesn't, because there are other net benefits. Moreover, it becomes very much more complex, and uh, the Commissioner has already mentioned, how many was it, 40 exceptions, probably even count more of them. The Dutch which you can see here from the slide, have four different rebates of their own. They have a rebate on the British rebate. They're paid a (coughs) fee for for, for collecting customs duties. They have a lower rate of the VAT resource, and they have a lower rate of the GNI resource. So four different rebates just on the the revenue side for the Dutch alone. And their their proportional rebate is now bigger than the British one, for those of you that, that don't know it. It doesn't even respond to how much they, they receive. It, it, it's, it's stuck at that level. So we might in future think much more in terms of an equalization system, like the Germans have in their Finanzausgleich, but this is, this is something for a much longer term. So here, here's some issues I think that is, I'll conclude with this, uh, we might want to consider in questions. The three modes of governance that you can could, you could envisage for the EU level. EU spending, which is what we're talking about tonight, Regulatory activity, or indeed coordination of member states—what member states do—and uh, part of the response to the, the credit crisis is indeed the coordination route, as we saw in what's being agreed around the various capitals. For the review, some of the outcomes that I think mo- might be worth looking for is: can we can we invent a successful way of deciding what should be done by the EU budget? What's sub- sub- subsidiarity or value added, which implies necessarily a much wider debate? And what, what, what what do? I'll make the suggestion that, in spite of having done the study on it, that the funding side is a second order of importance to getting the expenditure right. Not not everybody agrees with this, but then we need to think what are the criteria we want to apply and then choose the instruments. Should we move to a five-year framework rather than a seven-year framework which would align the EU budget much more with the existing political cycles both of the European Parliament and of the European Commission? Again, isn't that something to do with democracy? funding programs linked to them. And then concluding all this, the question where I always end up in this sort of thing is what, what do we want the EU for? And if, we, if we haven't yet decided on that, then it's very difficult to decide on, on what we want the budget to do. And I'll leave you with this thought. Yeah, that
0: was both lucid and informative and um, very, very helpful. Thank you. Excellent. Well, after those presentations, we've got a bit over 30 (coughs) minutes, perhaps, to take a few questions. Maybe we'll stretch it another few minutes. Um, I will just do the usual boring chairperson thing of asking you, please keep it very brief, no speeches. And if you could say who you are and what institution or what your calling is in life or whatever, that would be very helpful as well, um, at the band. Um, Shall I take questions? In, I'll, I'll take questions in clusters of three, if that's okay, and then you'll hand to decide which ones they want to reply to or not, or not, so if you'd like to.
3: Yeah.
4: Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Chris Littlecott from Green Alliance and an LSE alumni. Um, Commissioner, I, uh, I welcome your speech. It was um, remarkably different from your speech at the Budget Conference two weeks ago. Um, much more entertaining tonight, and I enjoyed the body language.
1: It was it was more recorded at that time than here.
4: So yes, of course. Um, picking up on Ian's point at the end, I wondered, could you say something about how you could see the public politics of the budget reform progressing? We've seen some very good policy input. Uh, uh, picking out the, the priorities we need to take, but how do we actually bring together wider coalitions across Europe to help deliver political change? Otherwise I fear we'll end up in, in a member state discussion which won't go anywhere. Thank you very, Thank you very much. much. I'll see if there
0: are there any questions on this side? I'll go to the, other, uh, the, lady, the lady there uh, and then the gentleman there.
4: Kathleen O'Hara, I'm a Canadian journalist. I'm just wondering about your, uh, your push for the new Europe. Um, reading between the lines of your speech, you're obviously pushing for more deregulation, more liberalization, more um, privatization. And I'm just wondering, after the economic meltdown that we've just seen, how you can continue with those kind of policies that seem to have been discredited. Thank you. Yeah.
0: judgment of the
5: Thank you, uh, John Yeom, I'm a sixth form teacher and um, I think p- the problem is quite simple the European Union is neither you know, a federal state in the way the United States is nor is it a collection of independent sovereign states, We're somewhere in the, in the middle and I think Professor Begg hit the nail on the head when he referred to this idea of representation without taxation so my point is I rather feel on this issue we're going to go round and round in circles until we uh, conclude that the democratically elected European Parliament should have control over the budget and then we can have all these sort of, these sort of arguments that we, had, as we saw at national level um, on Monday.
0: Thank you. Thanks very much. We will have another round after that. So, so uh, I'd like to take these yeah. here now, but there will be another one, one more round. Of, uh,
1: okay. It's, it, it looks that uh, exactly we've got one, uh, one question each. So, and um, relations between public politics, how people really can be involved and uh, what kind of pressures can be done, I think uh, at least the public consultation what we had and how publicly we and transparently we are providing information, it is public, uh, on all research, on all uh, consultation, and we're also doing our barometer, which we will public uh, publish uh, in December on opinion about budget and uh, reform also, so that will be the largest pressure Transparency, uh, information, public one, and that's the, the, the best pressure for governments. Because of course, governments will negotiate. Uh, the first, of course, with uh, some kind of uh, core decided core decision by the Parliament. But the main decisions will be made by government. And here, I want a little bit to add, just uh, to complement some concerns on uh, timing and possible outcome. On timing, we have two windows of opportunity next year, spring, before parliament will go for pre-election campaign, and autumn, something about maybe October, November. Uh, That's mainly because there are a lot of political uh, difficulties. Still this commission can do it, September, October still is this commission. Uh, and it depends on political willingness, mainly, uh, and I hope very much, at least my personal uh, wish will be much, but of course a lot of circumstances can be involved. Now, I um, want to be very clear here that this exercise will be absolutely different from the future financial framework preparation, which new Commission will be only preparing by 2011, and negotiations will go for new financial framework until 2013. Our exercise, we would like to present it at, no, during the 2009, and we expect about a year or two negotiations. Why? It is not so important which presidency at the moment of uh, publication will be in office. It's not so important at all, I mean, or Czech or Swedes uh, or whatever, because we only will place it publicly, but then real negotiations will go on. and. Then pieces of the proposal will be taken as a basis for some policies already preparing concrete financial framework. Um, and uh, uh, I myself uh, pushing and proposing to President Barroso to have optional paper, to be able to have more ambitions and more radical proposals. You cannot imagine that you can do it to- tomorrow in Europe. Europe is very easy, and Member States are very easy to negotiate and agree on things which, ca- which will happen after 10 years. For example, agricultural policy today we have was started to negotiate in 1999. <coughs> Negotiations uh, took place uh, t- uh, during three years. Uh, the final deal ha- have been wrapped up in 2002, and the results have been negotiated until 2014. I count on it. For member states who are today in office, it's easier to agree what will happen after ten years than what will happen tomorrow, because of lobbying. And I would like to see options of ambition in time and quality. First option, less ambitious, medium for medium term, more, and very radical one, we'll see uh, how how it will uh, happen, and then for member states to decide what to take from it. with options, it will be easy already to negotiate in, in, in commission. With options, will be a lot easier for Member States to, to, to adopt, and, and f- uh, with options of level of ambitious uh, reforms, or radicalism of reforms in each policy area, or at all reshuffling all budget, will be a lot easier for Member States to agree what will happen after 2020 than what will happen in 2050. Thank you.
5: Thank you,
0: Commissioner. Um, did you want to come in on any of the other questions? I as think well, it was okay. directly. Well, there was—is de- is de- deregulation um, discredited, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Zaki? Mm-hmm. To the extent it re- relates only tangentially, perhaps to our budget mm-hmm. discussion. But mm-hmm. it's
2: no, I mean it's, it's a very fair question, and I think I've been mean, just been sort of thinking what I would say in response to that, and. I think the first thing is it would be ridiculous for, for me um, to say that, um, you know, everything is fine and dandy because clearly we're in the biggest economic crisis at the very least since the 1930s. And, uh, you know, as it says in Hamlet, there's something rotten in the Kingdom of Denmark. Um, having said that, I don't think we should lose faith completely in the free free market model. Um, but friends of the free market model uh, and everyone has to think very long and hard about what went wrong and what we can do to make the situation better? I mean, there's a particular problem in the financial sector and the banking system, uh, and clearly the regulatory framework around that is not up to scratch and needs to be um, strengthened at national and European and international level. Um, uh, but that's had all sorts of knock-on effects on the on the rest of the economy, which can't be ignored. Um, I would also say that we shouldn't, the present economic crisis shouldn't make us lose sight of the progress that's been made by the EU really since its inception in, in freeing up markets and allowing capital, people, uh, goods, services and ideas to move freely across borders. And, and in fact, you could argue that the present economic circumstances make it all the more important that we need that free movement across Europe and, and in a wider sense. It was interesting that the G tw- after the G20 meeting a couple of weeks ago, the communique included uh, a commitment to looking again at the Doha World Trade Talks. Now, one can be sceptical about where that's going to go, but it was interesting that the 20 world leaders gathered around the table agreed that um, one of their responses to the economic crisis should be to try and uh, sort of boost international trade. Uh, another just quick thing I'd point out is that the, the U.S. response to the Enron uh, scandals uh, 10 or 15 years ago was to impose some quite heavy-handed regulations, Sarbanes-Oxley and so on, which had a very sort of damaging impact on, on uh, American competitiveness. And Europe has been loath to go down that route, and I think the UK, too, has been very mindful of what happened to the US um, in that period. So, um, yes, I mean, to some extent, I agree that, you know, pure liberalisation, free market capitalism, yeah, we have to scratch our heads and think again. That doesn't mean it's dead and we should relinquish it, but, uh, uh, you know, we should be very hesitant to sort of act rashly and impose anything that's too... Uh, burdensome, and also at the same time be mindful of the fact that the way that you boost economic growth, the growth is through freeing up markets.
1: Uh, I, I can allow myself a little bit to add, just to try to clarify. It's a very good uh, combination of the panel. Uh, I'm representing official, uh, neutral, and horizontal institution. Uh, here is more academic representative, and here we have very clear group of interest representatives so why, your question of course is very targeted and we understand it, why we also filter very much from all the range of impact or or opinions we receive what is useful, what can be affordable and what we will take into account so uh, I'm not at all I'm not surprised at all uh, that uh, one of our colleagues have been talking exactly the way he's supposed to talk
3: (laughs) I'll come back to the question about the European Parliament or observation about the European Parliament because I think that that does raise a a rather contentious political issue about where where political power ought to lie in budgeting in the EU and uh, I remind everybody that somewhere in the treaty it's written that the EU is a union of member states and citizens and we we seized on this in doing our study of how to fund it by saying we've got a great idea, 50-50 50% 50% member states, 50% citizens, and progressively allowing the, the European Parliament a bigger say, but not an exclusive say. That might be one way forward. Now, I also want to pick up on something the Commissioner just said about the, the timetable, because uh, there's there's one unspoken factor in uh, in the political timetable, and that is when will the current Commission President be reappointed? He has to be very careful what he says to not. To avoid upsetting people before he's reappointed and we assume he, he wants to be reappointed and that may be one of the particular reasons that uh, the, the budget review is uh, so low-key so far as he particularly want to say something at that point which uh, 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 seems like to be interesting? Um, yeah, really yeah, yeah, I think
1: uh, now so many uh, challenges and possibilities to uh, talk uh, on a lot of issues that the budget reform uh, here is uh, not uh, so so, so in on high profile. Uh, but anyway, I think he will be risking more if he will be not talking at all, uh, th- especially during these times. Uh, but um, we do expect that it will come about uh, as procedures uh, say, uh, in June, and uh, in the beginning of July, it's supposed to be formally appointed, if, if of course uh, Europe will not collapse uh, in, in next half a year in general. But but we do not expect any uh, unexpected um, events here. Uh, but uh, opposite, I think the, the more he will be active now, especially on, on uh, economic situation in Europe, the more chances he have. because if he will be only lime duck, uh, in lime Duck's uh, situation, it will be, for him, uh, practically dead.
0: Thank you very much. I'll take another
5: round of questions. There's a gentleman over there. I'm Nikos Christolik from the European Institute. I enjoyed very much the presentation and I'd like to uh, (coughs) express a question, So, a question on how the budget will evolve in order to play a more crucial role and more effective role in shaping the European economy. Yesterday, for example, we witnessed that uh, a huge package of about 200 billion euros was announced, which is by far higher than the European budget we're discussing now. And if we were living in a truly integrated uh, economic and monetary union like the United States, for example, that could be part of the federal budget. Uh, I wonder uh, if. Ever we shall be in a position to expand the European budget in order to provide uh, sufficient funds to address uh, serious circumstances which emerge uh, on the eve of the credit crunch or other shocks which impinge upon European economies. And uh, in doing that, we make the European budget as a vehicle for further integration and federalism. Rather than staying only uh, on how to refocus the budget or make it more uh, effective. Of course, these are very important issues, and they have to be addressed. They have to be addressed quickly. But I think that uh, we still have to keep a broader view of uh, what the European budget uh, uh, should serve in a, in a large and more integrated European Union. Thank, Thank you. Very you. Much.
0: Um, yes, other questions. There was a gentleman, a gentleman over there, caught my eye. Um, just over there.
4: Thanks. Andrew Smith, I'm a Chartered Accountant. I'm also a prospective MEP candidate for next June's elections for the UK Independence Party. Uh, we've read in this country
5: that the UK, EU Commission is already spending money on projects which were to be approved by the
3: Lisbon Treaty. The Lisbon Treaty has not yet passed. We must therefore assume that your projections for the future, the budgets we will be discussing tonight, include programmes which are envisaged in the Lisbon Treaty. To what extent would the budgets have to be amended, and what would be the process of doing that if the Lisbon Treaty does not pass by say next June?
0: Thank you very much. And one more question, gentlemen.
4: Hello. Um, my name's um, Jack Thurston. I uh, run a project called farmsubsidy.org which has tried to bring transparency to the operation of the common agricultural policy. Uh, but, uh, where money goes, and using the information where the money goes. I want to ask you whether you agree with your colleague in the commission that the health check agreed last week uh, makes the cap fit for the future. Um, I noticed that you mentioned in a, an article uh, interview earlier in the year that you thought that the any changes to the single farm payment which represents about a third of, of, well about a quarter of the EU budget would probably not have their full effect until 2020 and 2021 if you're the radical leading edge of budget reform and you're talking about major reforms to the common agricultural policy waiting until 2021 um, what chance do we have for an outcome that you know, will be in the lifetimes of so one or two people in this room.
1: Okay, three questions and all to me. I now. This time, okay. Starting from CAP, uh, can we say that after this uh, final deal, uh, which, as usually, deals in Europe after uh, long discussions, became laundered a lot uh, from the very first proposal? I can evaluate personally. Yes, it will fit for the future, but a very close one. That's a short answer. Lisbon Treaty and about financing uh, the projects on Lisbon Treaty. We're not financing projects from Lisbon Treaty uh, because we're financing the projects which have been agreed by member states and 80% uh, practically the projects are in any treaty. But if member states think that project is necessary or policy is necessary, we don't need it be <laughs> described in the treaty. That's how it is about. In the treaty we have only two policies, cap and cohesion. The rest... It's up to the member states to negotiate, and if they think we need to, for example, to pay for Galileo, we do. If they agree, for example, to to pay for external relations and to help uh, Georgia, we do. So that's how European budget works. Uh, Now, uh, from Greece, gentlemen, from pronunciation, understood? About, um, and you worked before in finance ministry, and you want very large budget. If finance minister of Greece will agree to pay a lot, I will be very happy to have a very large budget. <laughs> so really, uh, of course, for any finance minister, it will be a dream to have a huge budget. But I'm uh, fi- an mi- ex-finance minister uh, in, in my country, and I can say it's not only about the size, really, and mainly not about the size. It's about the policies we agree to pay, and then here the question what Europe will want. What policies we want from Europe uh, to to deliver to our citizens, and then only to calculate how much it costs. And then only we will talk about how much we need.
3: Thank you. Any of our other panellists, Ian? In answer to Nikos Christodoulacki's observations, he's making the straightforward point that in most other polities, the highest level of government engages in some macroeconomic stabilisation. The EU budget is simply incapable of doing that because it's too small, and it would need a much bigger budget at European level ever to be able to influence the the conduct of macroeconomics. What the EU budget does do is the, the other two branches of public finance identified by Musgrave 50 years ago, which is an element of allocation and an element of redistribution. It doesn't deal with interpersonal redistribution, but inter-member state redistribution with net financial flows going to some countries and coming from others. But most of the EU budget is in principle about allocation of resources or trying to get allocative improvements. Now, Whether it succeeds is an open question, because there's in some cases insufficient evaluation of how, how effective policies are, and we don't actually know whether cohesion policy works as well as it should, for instance, even though that's predominantly allocation. So there is an almost a back-to-front picture compared with what the theories of fiscal federalism tell us in what the EU budget does. It is a very limited amount on a very small scale. Thank you very much.
0: Zaki, did you want to come in no. on any
2: of the questions? Um, yeah, I mean, just quickly, I'll pick up the gentleman's point. Um, in terms of the size of the EU budget, I would say it would be very hard to make a case for increasing, uh, increasing the size of the budget until uh, the spending priorities more accurately reflect what, what should be be the case, and we, I think we've all spoken before about the need to reallocate um, away from the CAP. Um, your point about being a tool of integration—I mean, I would say that shouldn't necessarily be a goal of the EU budget, but it could be a happy byproduct yeah. if more money is spent on research and development. We know that EU, the EU as a continent has an innovation deficit compared to the United States or Japan, and, and if more money were to be channeled into stimulating innovation, uh, then you know it could be. A, 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 uh, strengthened European integration could be a happy by-product, but it shouldn't be the, the uh, initial objective, I think. That's...
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, I think, I hope everyone here will agree we've had uh, a really fascinating discussion. Uh, we particularly as the school and on behalf of the ordinance, I'd like to thank you, Commissioner, for coming over, especially from Brussels, to uh, lead this um, uh, panel discussion. And I'd like to thank you very much for your presentation and for your... Very punchy answer to questions. And to thank you to Ian Begg and to Zachy Cooper. Um, and um, well, this show will run and run potentially for years. So I'm sure we'll be reconvening here before long. But thank you all very much. <laughs>